Not-So-Brief COVID-19 Update, Monday, August 31st, 2020. Calling all coaches. I want to start by clarifying that I was recently quoted by some as stating I was against contact sports this fall. However, the excerpt in the Portland Press-Herald article on this issue was, quote, This fall is not the time for Maine to insist on high school sports as usual, she said. Low-contact sports like golf or swimming could probably hold interscholastic meetings with a few restrictions, she said, but cross-country, cross-state competition for high-contact sports like football or wrestling are probably a bad idea for Maine as a whole, not just the athletes, their families, or fans, end quote. My comment was specific to cross-state competitions for high-contact sports, and it was also clear in the article that I was interpreting, interpreting and referencing federal and other national guidances on these issues. This is certainly a complex and challenging issue. My interests are professional from a public health standpoint, as well as personal, as the mother of two children whose extracurricular activities have been critical to their development. I also have my own experience with such pursuits. In high school, I was, an, I was active in a number of activities, marching band, chorus, theater, and sports. I wasn't a standout in any of them, but I enjoyed all of them, and they instilled skills and lessons I carry with me today. I think I enjoyed running the most, mainly because I enjoyed it throughout my life. These days I more often jog, or even wog, the latter term I use when I think I'm jogging, but others who see me say that I'm walking. In racing, I've always been a back of the packer. One high school cross-country race, while on the trail in the middle of the woods, I tripped on a route and skidded several feet. Scraped up and stunned, I lay on the ground. A teammate stopped and helped me up then walked with me for a bit until I could start running on my own. Both of our finishing times were poor, even for us back of the Packers. On the bus on the way back home, the coach commented on her actions, saying that it was the meaning of a true team to have each other's backs. I only have a vague memory of the incident, but the teammate who stepped to me, who stopped me, stopped to help me, remembers it vividly and reached out to me a few years ago to let me know how much it impacted her, since it helped her to learn how to learn that how a race is run, how a game is played, how a process is put into place, is often just as if, just as, if not more important, than the outcome itself. What struck me was the impact of the coach's words on her and perhaps others all these decades later. Indeed, there is no doubt that extracurricular activities, including school sports and performing arts, are an important part of our educational system. They provide additional channels for students to grow lifelong friendships to experience mentoring by a coach or teacher, to take risks in healthy ways, to learn skills such as time management, leadership, and and goal setting, to discover what it's like to be part of a team, and to acquire lifelong abilities and hobbies, yes, even wogging. Students who participate in extracurricular activities are more likely to do well academically as well as emotionally and physically. As the start of the 2020 to 2021 school year approaches, It is clear that the extracurricular activities pose challenges, especially since so many of them are highly dependent on close physical contact, and some cannot be performed while wearing a mask. U.S. CDC, Maine State Government, American Academy of Pediatrics, and other public health authorities have provided guidance for many of these activities. These guidance documents take a common approach. They consider higher-risk activities to be those that require close interaction, take place indoors, share equipment, require travel outside of the local community that includes contact with those from the other from other from the other community and or require an audience or spectators. 
The longer the interaction and the more people the interaction is with, the higher the risk. Public health guidance documents basically modify activities to reduce risk of them spreading COVID-19 by, for instance, increasing spacing or putting up barriers between unmasked actors in a play, as well as increasing the space with the audience, who in turn are masked and are sitting in household groups, each six feet apart from the others. Staggering start times for cross-country races in order to ensure adequate spacing between runners. Reducing density of players and or spreading them out in order to ensure at least six feet separation. Requiring masking of all athletes, except for cross-country runners, staff, and spectators. Moving activities outdoors or increasing ventilation if it must be held indoors. Requiring frequent hand hygiene and disinfecting of equipment. Restricting the sharing of equipment or, or instruments. Travel outside of the community and the size of the audiences slash spectators and allowing scrimmages within the school district or community, but not games with other communities or regions. For high contact activities, such as football and wrestling, clearly the modifications are much more substantial than for low contact sports, such as golf or cross country. For these higher risk sports, some states have moved these seasons to the spring of 2021, with hopes that there will be a reduced pandemic activity and a vaccine. Other states are allowing football to be played as a non-contact game, such as 7x7 football, or with limited contact. Others are allowing individual skill building or conditioning instead of competition. These strategies are all options included in the recommendation by the US CDC. Links to these are below. According to the Aspen Institute, football is one of the hardest sports to bring back during the pandemic. The sport has contact on every single play. It is a game filled with large root rosters of players and coaches. The virus could spread through droplets within tackle piles, huddles, sidelines, and locker rooms. USA football, Football's guidance, guidelines recommend a phased approach to returning, but we're already seeing several youth football leagues cancel their fall se season in prominent football hotbeds. The Chicagoland Youth Football League, considered one of the largest football leagues in the country with 8,000 players from 46 suburbs, decided not to play. The American Youth Football League, with more than 4,000 players spanning three counties, became the first football league in South Florida to cancel. I don't believe there is going to be a youth football this year, AYFL President Jim Ross told the South Florida Sentinel, Sun Sentinel. In Montgomery, Alabama, the president of one youth football team won't allow his team to play this season, even though the other nine teams plan to do so. I've been a comp competitor all my life, Ozaki Jones, president of the Montgomery Raiders, told the Montgomery Advertiser. And as competitive as I am, I don't want to have the season at the expense of somebody's life being taken away. I should mention that I have heard some say that close contact with most sports, including football, generally accumulates to less than 15 minutes over a game, so that COVID-19 may not be a risk. It is true that the basic screening question for possible COVID-19 exposure is if someone had 15 minutes or more contact with someone who was tested positive. However, it is simply one screening question. If someone kisses someone who is positive for COVID-19 for, say, 30 seconds, that is, sufficient to contact, that is sufficient to contract the infection. Likewise, with some activities such as football, wrestling, and some theater productions, the contact is so close that it should not take 15 minutes of it to put people at risk for the infection. Some examples of what other states are doing with fall high school sports are below. States that have moved fall high school sports to the spring of 2021. California, Delaware, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maryland, Nevada, New Mexico, and Oregon. 
states that have moved high-risk sports such as football to spring of 2021 and are allowing lower-risk sports, e.g. cross-country running, this fall, include Colorado, Illinois, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, Virginia, Washington, and Wisconsin. Other states are considering moving some, if not all, of the force. Other states are considering moving some, if not all, of the fall sports to the spring: Louisiana and South Carolina. The majority of the remaining states have at least postponed the start of practices. A few details on what other New England states have decided are below. Connecticut decided this last week to allow groups of 10 athletes in all sports to begin low-risk conditioning and non-contact sport-specific skill work. They will reassess the situation on September 21st, which allows schools to have been in session for two weeks to determine what impact the reopening has had on the pandemic activity. No full, t no full team practices will occur before then. The Department of Public Health has advised against any volleyball and football. Massachusetts decided on August 19th to move high-risk sports like football, cheerleading, and unified basketball to a floating season that starts in late February, assuming the pandemic activity will allow that then. Golf, volleyball, field hockey, and soccer are scheduled to start practices September 18th, with significant modifications such as what the USCDC recommends in order to reduce risks. New Hampshire decided August 6th to start practices September 8th, with modifications to reduce to reduce risk. Low-risk sports such as golf start competition the soonest, on September 10th. Moderate-risk sports such as cross-country, field hockey, and soccer start competition the soonest on September 18th. High-risk sports such as football start competition the soonest on September 25th. Updates are expected, and these draft schedules may change depending on the levels of pandemic activity. Rhode Island on August 5th, the Rhode Island Interscholastic League League, which oversees high school interscholastic sports, announced the school sports practices could not begin until the earliest, September 14th, to allow schools to open first and see how the pandemic activities evolve. They stated, quote, this will allow our schools to reopen for education before athletics are brought into the equation. Our athletes are students first, end quote. The league is supposed to revisit the guidance soon in order to determine if there are any changes needed. Vermont state government issued guidance in mid-August, and the Vermont Principals Association issued their guidance shortly afterwards, which was based on state government guidance. Both categorize sports by risk, similar to the U.S. CDC. They require modifications to each sport, depending on their level of risk. Facial coverings must be worn by all athletes, staff, and spectators, with an exception for cross-country runners, so long as physical distancing is maintained, which occurs with staggered starting times. For football, considered a high-risk sport, Vermont is only allowing a 7x7 non-contact version of the game. Soccer and field hockey may hold team practice sessions, inter-squad scrimmages, and interscholastic games with counties with similar rates of pandemic activity. Jamboree, or tournament-style play, one team playing multiple games versus multiple opponents to it in a single day slash weekend, is not permitted. Vermont is also not allowed is not allowing interscholastic games if schools are not open for in-person learning. Although decisions seem to be pending in Maine, that is not unusual. Other New England and many other states have caveats that their more final guidance for the fall is pending or subject to change after school reopening and a determination of what the impact is on the pandemic. Meanwhile, there have been a number of outbreaks related to high school sports in those states that have restarted them. 
Some examples from the Midsummer Review by the Aspen Institute's project play. In Kentucky, there was an outbreak among a high school football team that spread to 38 people, including 18 football players, three, co three coaches, and 17 of their family members and close contacts who have tested positive. In St. Louis County, Missouri, the county executive said youth sports are, quote, the primary source of spread in the community, end quote. County officials said there have been six to eight new cases of COVID-19 reported daily in children and teens ages 10 to 19. At least two high schools have reported cases involving athletes participating in football conditioning workouts. The county's Department of Public Health created new guidelines for youth sports. Teams are now only allowed to practice and play within team competitions and not against other teams or compete in tournaments. Some youth sports leagues are protesting the order. In Iowa, high school baseball and softball postseason brackets have been heavily disrupted by COVID-19 cases on various teams. Iowa was the first state to resume high school sports. Roughly 25 baseball teams and 20 softball teams have been impacted by possible exposures or infections, according to ESPN. Some recent examples from New England. A multi-state outbreak emanating from a youth ice hockey tournament held in Connecticut July 31st to August 2nd, and an August outbreak from ice hockey in Exeter, New Hampshire, involving youth from different states. Although this post has been very focused on sports, I don't want to admit other extracurricular activities that face similar challenges, especially performing arts. Studies indicate that the droplets and aerosols carrying COVID-19 can travel much farther than six feet, especially when people are singing, shouting, breathing hard, e.g. in athletics, or playing a woodwind instrument. There are two sets of, sets of, there are two sets of such studies. Those that swabbed surfaces or collected air samples in the room of patients who were bedridden to see how far the outbreaks, the virus spread, and epidemiological studies of outbreaks. As far as the former, a couple of studies now indicate viable virus may be able to travel about 14 feet, and that's without the possible added projections found in singing or playing a woodwind instrument. As far as epidemiological studies, one of the most well-known is the Skagit Valley Choir outbreak, during which 87% of the 60-plus member choir became infected, associated with rehearsals. Based on these studies, it is is this it is especially important to space people very far apart if they are unmasked and need to project, project, and need to project their voices or otherwise breathe heavily or play a woodwind instrument. A 14 feet distance is commonly used to space people apart in these situations. However, the exact distance is not known and is likely also very dependent on other factors such as ventilation. This uncertainty means performing arts are very challenging. Though I understand from friends who are high school music or theater teachers, they are inherently creative and up to the challenge. For instance, some are discussing hosting outdoor performances, having those who are singing or playing woodwind instruments do so virtually or outside with the 14 feet distancing, and modifying theatrical scripts to include fewer actors on stage at a time. Their inventiveness could result in some of the most innovative and interesting productions. No matter what extracurricular activity a child is interested in, there are some questions that parents or guardians should be asking, borrowed from the Aspen Institute, before participating this fall. Is my child or our or our household is my child or our household members more vulnerable to becoming ill from COVID-19? Has my child's program shared a detailed plan for COVID-19 risk mitigation? Is the program embracing a phased approach to reopening? How will the program identify players or coaches who are 
potentially infected? How do I determine if my child is infected infected and should I avoid and should avoid participation? Is my child old enough to understand the reasons for maintaining physical distancing? What mask procedures are in place for my child's program? How comfortable am I in signing a COVID-19 waiver? Finally, I think it is critical we all acknowledge that there is much we still do not know. This is a pandemic with a novel virus, one that we only have a few months experience with. Although the mortality rate among youth appears low, we don't know, what, we don't know to what extent youth transmit this infection to others. It appears that children between the ages of 10 and 19 may transmit the virus as well as adults do, and children younger than 10 may spread it less commonly. We also do not know much about the long-term effects of this virus. As one example, some research has shown as many as 20% of people who recover from COVID-19 show cardiac abnormalities. A more recent study, a more recent article, sorry, in JAMA indicates that 78% of COVID-19 patients had some kind of cardiac abnormality and 60% showed inflammation consistent with my, myocarditis. In this study, researchers provided cardiac MRI exams to 100 patients who had recovered from COVID-19, including two-thirds who had suffered mild or no symptoms. As a result of these studies and the known complication in young people involving the heart called multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, MIS-C, there are emerging standards about when it is appropriate to clear athletes for return to play after a COVID-19 infection. This is complicated by young people often having few symptoms of the infection. Although there are many uncertainties, there are also some areas of clarity. It is important, it is important schools try to reopen, especially to address the overall health, safety, and educational needs of many of our youth, especially those who live in poverty and other vulnerable situations. Extracurricular activities are also important to the overall health of our youth. It is likely there will be an increase in pandemic activity in fall in this fall due to factors such as K-12 schools and colleges reopening, colder weather resulting in people spending more time indoors, and possible circulation of influenza. Of influenza. Balancing these risks and benefits is very challenging. However, no matter which extracurricular activities are available and the extent to which they are modified, we also know that our youth need coaching and mentoring now more than ever. And what an opportunity we have before us to teach our youth that they are part of a bigger team. I have read that in some parts of the country, sports teams that cannot play are using some of their conditioning time to unload and organize deliveries to local food pantries and doing yard work for those who are older and living alone. The pandemic has caused us to trip and skid along our journey. However, <clears throat> this fall could be a teachable moment for all of us, reminding us that we are part of a team, our family and our communities, that can help us to stand upright and once again move along life's trail. <clears throat> Especially as schools reopen and the temperatures drop, we all need to have each, each other's backs. Our youth are returning to school and other activities during the worst pandemic since 1918. Our teachers, school administrators, and staff are heroes as they have worked hard this summer to be able to, wel to warmly welcome returning students after a six-month hiatus and provide an environment to educate and nurture them, while masks and in classrooms marked for distancing and hygiene. With ongoing unemployment, many more in our communities are struggling with food insecurity and mental health challenges. Older people are facing a particularly long and lonely winter as their six months in relative isolation is now moving increasingly indoors. Restaurants and other businesses are facing more difficulties as they too move indoors. No matter what types of extracurricular activities our youth, our youth can participate in, 
The long-lasting impact of this school year is likely to be formed by the attitudes and responses to the pandemic by the mentors and coaches in their lives. My hope is that we all see ourselves as mentors and coaches, and that decades from now, our youth will look back and remember how they were part of a team, a team that had each other's backs, a team of friends, family, and community, and a team that helped their community get back on their feet and on the trail.